0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call nine one one and stay until help arrives. More information at OpioidResponse.info.
1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us today. Um, We worried yesterday whether we were going to be able to get a live show on the air today. But you know what? We made it. Uh, And the state is now, uh, or the the National Weather Service, rather, has now canceled the weather emergency for Metro Atlanta. But you know what? Even when we still thought that things might get rough, Dr. Andre Gillespie, political science professor at Emory University, Eric Tannenblatt, Republican insider, former chief of staff to Governor Sonny Perdue. Former City Council uh, President, Atlanta City Council President, Caesar Mitchell, all said, we're coming. We don't care about the weather. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank You're you being all You're being very kind. Here. That wasn't
2: exactly... <laughs> well, it was,
1: it was close. Um, as we get started today, let, let's go just for a couple minutes to our correspondent down at the state capitol. Donna Lowry, are you there?
0: I am. You've got a good group there. Yeah, we do.
1: This is a, a great... Um, We've got some noise on the line. Uh, Tom okay. Faust, do we want to try this again, or are we okay? Donna? Yes. Give us a sense of what uh, what the day has been like down at the Capitol.
0: Well, we just had the, the House just finished up, so they put in a little, a, little, a little more than an hour of work this morning, but basically it's been pretty quiet here. <laughs> After the governor closed the state offices yesterday, the Senate decided to at least gavel in, a handful of senators showed up. They did that. Uh, State Senator David, uh, State uh, Senate Secretary, I should say, David Cook, noted there was no quorum. He officially did that. They adjourned immediately until tomorrow morning. Uh, later on, I asked uh, the Majority Leader Mike Dugan about that, and he's told me that they they knew that. There was no way of knowing what to expect, of course, with the weather today. So while they only have 40 days, they'd rather err on the side of caution, and that's what they did. So they will—they came in. Everything was quiet, a handful of senators. They moved on. The House, however, took a different approach. One o'clock this afternoon, they came in. Uh, the roll call showed, showed about uh, 159 of them here, so pretty full. And, of course, they... Uh, had the advantage of coming in later in the day and knowing it was mostly a rain event um, and no sm- snow emergency. The house Chaplain did make some fun about things, saying, uh, telling them that, th- thanking them for braving the elements this morning and, uh, and the dangers. So there was a little laughter over that. <laughs> yeah. So mostly mostly just a lot of um, announcements and uh, those kind of things. Not Not a lot of serious work, but they, they did come in, and they did work.
1: You know, I'm interested. I mean, this is not an election year, so there is nothing that will uh, hurry them along in their se- – I mean, they never want to stay longer than they absolutely have to. Nevertheless, I am sort of interested, under that they decided to burn a day today in both the Senate and the House side. Uh, when they got a lot, they want to accomplish this, think. I think yeah.
2: – I think everybody was so burned here in 2014 that we err on the side of caution. And if somebody's kid was out of school or if some road was impassable and God forbid something had happened, nobody wants to bear that responsibility. Well, I guess
3: that's right. Plus <laughs> the whole the whole nation is watching Atlanta this week as we lead up to the Super Bowl. Yeah. And we want to just make sure everything's perfect.
1: Um, Donna, is there uh, is there talk down there about this being Governor Kemp's first big test for uh, weather problems?
0: Yeah, a little bit about that, but not a lot of focus on that. I think people were trying, the Senate at least, was trying to take cues from him. And when he closed state offices, they decided that they should go ahead and kind of follow suit with that. Um, The uh, speaker did talk about the fact that he didn't think it made sense to even come in and just adjourn right away for, for them. So there were some jokes. But other than that, I think... Right now, they were just there's that psychological factor that uh, Audra just n- mentioned. But you know, we, we went through some bad times when it came to weather, and no one wanted to take the risk right. that we might have something bad happen this morning. Right.
1: Um, I know you got to work on uh, your piece for lawmakers. You're on at seven o'clock tonight. Can you give us a preview of what we're going to hear from you tonight?
0: Well, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to actually actually see what happened here today and and talk a little bit about why it happened and what what this actually means, you know, in the future, how they might handle things like this. A snow day. A snow day.
1: (laughs) Donna Lowry, thank you so much for being with us for a few minutes. We'll look for you uh, tonight on The Lawmakers right here on GPB-TV. Take care. Thanks. Bye. So, you know, Andra said it, uh, uh, Cesar and Eric, (laughs) you've got a pity People who have to make these—I mean, the last job in the world I would want is to be the Fulton County, DeKalb County, City of Atlanta uh, education person who's got to decide whether to call classes off or not. It's, it's a really,
3: really tough call, and if you get it wrong, you know people are going to be critical of
1: you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, from all accounts, uh, Caesar. The Kemp people, they dodged a bullet here, but they seemed, as of yesterday, they held a news conference with Mayor Bottoms, the governor did. Uh, they were out there treating highways. I mean, it did appear that the governor was aware how important it is to get these things
4: right. Well, I think the the uh, the, the word for the, today or yesterday is proaction. Yeah. Uh, I think that if you can be proactive, uh, then you can win the game. I think we learned that lesson in 2014 uh, in a very profound way. And so the press conference yesterday, quite frankly, I'm sure it's just probably a a good chance for everybody to get together and say hello, because you can best (laughs) believe the state and the city and the metro area uh, was prepared.
1: Well, I thought it would be fun to spend a little while today looking at how things can go wrong, how important handling a weather emergency can be to a political career. So let's just go back to snowpocalypse, to 2014 when uh, North Georgia, Metro Atlanta came to a complete standstill. And uh, there was a lot of blame thrown around. Governor Deal took a lot of blame. But Kasim Reed seemed to really be on the hot seat. He did a series of interviews with NBC, CBS, CNN, whatever, trying to explain what went wrong. And I just thought it would be interesting to play a little bit of his interview with Aaron O'Brien on CNN.
2: You tweeted, sir, yesterday morning, quote, Atlanta, we are ready for the snow. For useful numbers and information, make sure you read our press release. That's Um, right. Do you, in
4: retrospect, feel that that tweet was a little off? And and 24 hours later, if you put up the images of the city right now, the city, after a severe storm weather event, is functioning and 80% of our streets are clear, and zero fatalities occurred, but I've sat and watched all day long you all show image after images of interstates that aren't in the city limits and that aren't the responsibility of the city. And the only name that you all have used all day long is the city of Atlanta.
2: So is it the governor's fault that the interstates have, have created this, this this horrible image and horrible experience?
4: No, Aaron. I think rather than play the blame game, we have shared responsibility. But I want to state clearly. I don't have jurisdiction to clear interstate highways in the city of Atlanta.
1: All right. So, Caesar, I know you got a story because you, you were city council president <laughs> when that happened. So we'll get, I want to get to your story in a second. Yeah, but yeah. before we get there, Dr. Gillespie, uh, it strikes me that when a city is paralyzed, when people are literally sleeping in their cars, they mm-hmm. have no food, students are trapped in school buses at schools, that May Reed gave a textbook example of how not to handle a crisis. I mean, isn't isn't your first job to be empathetic and uh, and then take whatever is coming your way?
2: Well, that's not what Kasim Reed did ever. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that has to be acknowledged. I, I do remember when that happened. I, you know, I remember the church that I went to was right off the highway. They actually let people, like, sleep on the pews because people got stuck on 75. Like, there was just a lot of stuff that was going on. Um, that day but in particular I understood the frustration at the time of showing pictures of what I recall being the cop Cloverleaf and going that's Smyrna that's not Atlanta but I mean I think on the other hand When you think of Atlanta, we know the difference between Atlanta and Alpharetta and, you know, know, Stockbridge, but nobody else does. It's all metro Atlanta. And so I think there it's probably better to talk about the coordinated efforts than for you to just try to sort of delimit. Well, the line is like right here, you know, (laughs) you know, on this street when you get on this block. And I think we all learned a lesson from that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Atlanta (laughs) officials love to take credit when things uh, happen outside the city limits when it's positive news. But in a case like this, you know, he was trying to make the
1: point that, well, this is not. Yeah, responsibility. I mean, Caesar, it's just not <laughs> the way you want to deal with that. You just say, yeah, we really, really have created a terrible problem. And yeah. I do have to share my responsibility, but not stop blaming
4: me, no, CNN, <laughs> ABC, no, CBS. A- absolutely. and. and <laughs> And I don't know if I want to take umbrage with with, uh, Eric's general kind of characterization of Atlanta officials, you know, as a member of the the Atlanta (laughs) Regional Commission and the Georgia Municipal Association, I I understood very clearly when I was an Atlanta official how important it is to be willing to take the credit uh, sometimes, uh, but certainly less than you take the blame, quite frankly. And that's what leadership requires, being willing to take the blame sometimes when you're not at fault, but you're in a role to make a difference. And so, anyhow, but, but you know, I, you know, I, I was saying earlier how it, 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 the whole incident was funny and sad. Uh, it was sad because of all of what people went through in a very devastating way, being in their cars all night, running out of gas, getting cold, accidents that occurred, families separated. My wife, it took my wife four hours to get home from Midtown with our girls in the car. Yeah. And uh, and she was uh, a wreck when she got home. So it was a very serious situation. But, you know, there are four things really quickly. If you give me a sure. second. <clears throat> two Two of those things are kind of out of uh, our control as human beings to some degree. The first was it was just a perfect storm the day before uh, The ground was warm. The air was warm. And so you could not predict it In fact the meteorologist didn't even realize we were in a world of hurt until two or three o'clock in the morning Quite frankly because there was a all go the night before quite frankly The second thing is it's just a terrible case of Murphy's law uh, and you know what was happening that particular day was a uh, the Georgia trend You know, most influential Georgians event. Now, that's all right. That event occurs. It it occurs every year and it can occur in the rain and in the snow. But what happened was that this event occurred uh, at the Ritz Carlton Hotel downtown.
1: And the governor, and the mayor, and you as city council president, all there.
4: At this event, every elected official, and even folks who are not elected officials uh, who have influence and sway, are there. Everyone was there. Now, here's the problem. That's not even the problem. The problem was that the the event was in a room that had no windows and zero (laughs) cell signal. And I literally (laughs) remember being there, and my chief of staff I mean, literally watching people rush into the room around 12 o'clock or so, 12.30— and just start pulling everyone out of the room because we had no idea what was going on and by the time we got outside uh, The ground had started to cover with with with, uh, with snow and ice. So that's the second thing Murphy's law I mean you you, you know, so I kind of think about when you 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 listen to Reed's response It makes me think about my daughters uh, When when they've left some clothes on the floor uh, and one daughter's clothes are on the floor and the other ones are not And you ask the one whose clothes are now on the floor to pick up his her sister's clothes You said well, it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. Uh, Uh, And I think that was part of the reaction because there were so many factors that kind of were out of control. But here are two things, the last two things, which were in our control. Uh, Number one, uh, just the lack of preparedness. Uh, We were not prepared. There was no coordination uh, between governments at every level. And then, of course, local government around the metro area. Uh, I think this event showed that we had zero preparedness, zero uh, level of coordination, which was a problem. I recall you actually sending a note to the board chairman that early that morning said this may be a problem, you know, have you all talked, uh, city to school system. No. There have been no real conversation. So the lack of preparedness. And then the last thing I think, and you touched on this with the clip, is just uh the way we handle this, uh, from a from a yeah, defensive reaction. From a public relations so standpoint, it, or just from a, a the standpoint, yeah. standpoint of communicating, it, to people was it, very it, problematic. It,
1: um, it took uh, Governor Deal it took it t- took time for him his image to 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 come back. I mean he was he was fortunate in a way that we had a snow another storm, uh, uh, you know, a few weeks later, and they were able to respond well. All right, so there's that. Let's look at another weather emergency that would be of particular interest to you, Eric Tannenblatt, considering that you were a, a very big part of Mitt Romney's twenty sixteen uh president I mean twenty uh twelve presidential uh run. He's uh, the general he's the candidate, the Republican candidate going up against President Obama. Hurricane Sandy hits the East Coast and particularly devastates New Jersey. And um when that happens, uh the governor, Chris Christie, calls the president and says get in here. We need to have you here to help us. Here's Chris Christie at a news avail with President Obama at his side.
3: And I cannot thank the president enough for his personal concern and compassion for our state and for the people of our state. And I heard it on the phone conversations with him and I was able to witness it today personally. And so uh, we're going to continue to work. State government is
1: here. We're doing what we need to do. Here's a Republican Governor Chris Christie singing Obama's praises literally weeks before the election. Eric, uh, it was the week before. Was the, it just one? <laughs> it was the week before, and, and you didn't have the visuals with the hug,
3: right? <laughs> right. But uh, but you know what? Uh, you, you know, in hindsight, you know, you have to put politics aside, and in this case, it was a devastating storm, and Governor Christie had a responsibility to the state. And the federal government provides resources that the state and local governments need when there's a time of need. And, you know, I remember at that time, you know, Mitt Romney did his part, you know, working with the American Red Cross, trying to uh, provide relief. Whether that was it impacted the uh, results of the election? I don't know. You can never predict.
2: It's New Jersey. (laughs) So it probably wasn't going to affect that. And I also would also point out, while I think. Governor Christie did that because it was the right thing to do. And his state needed the money. He also had to run for reelection the next year.
1: Absolutely. So. But Republican Party, he got a lot of pushback from Romney people, from the uh, National Republican Party for uh, singing Obama's praises like that. So interesting.
4: Yeah, but he knew his his praise would not have made a difference yeah. in the race. He knew that, I'm sure. All
1: yeah. right. Let's go back to uh, Katrina. New Orleans is devastated. Uh President George W. Bush uh, um, is flying back at one point in Air Force One from a trip. I don't recall where he'd been, but I know the plane was flying over Louisiana in the aftermath of Katrina. And probably the first mistake there is we are told by the communications office they put this out so that the so the journalists will see that he cares that they've decided to fly the plane low over New Orleans so he can look out and see the damage. There's a photograph that shows him looking out the window. Once again, Andra, uh, maybe well-intended, but a, not a very, very effective way to to show your concern. And in a minute, we're going to mm-hmm. e- get even more on it, but just that in itself.
2: But I think if you compare President Bush's um, reaction... Especially after 9-11 where he goes to New York immediately afterwards and he's standing on the rubble and he's giving, you know, that speech to those who right. are the first responders. Like that's in sharp contrast to kind of the detachment initially after Hurricane Katrina.
1: Katrina really I seem to have, have awakened him to understanding this. But here's the famous, infamous line where he is now in New Orleans, surrounded by federal emergency personnel, including his good friend, the director of FEMA. Let's listen.
2: But right now, the immediate concern is to save lives and get food and medicine to people so we can stabilize the situation. Uh, again, I, I want to thank you all for, and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The FEMA directors
0: working 24 hours. They're working 24 hours a day. Again, my attitude is if it's not going exactly right, we're going to make it go exactly right.
4: If there's problems, we're going to address the problems, and and that's and that's what I've come
2: down to assure people.
1: Okay, uh, Caesar. Unfortunately, Michael Brown, Brownie, the director of FEMA, was not doing a terrific job. He lost his job shortly after this, and this was another bad moment for the way in which an elected official handled the aftermath of a crisis, an emerg- a weather crisis. Well, I guess, and to his credit,
4: he got there. He said what he thought. Uh, was the all of the right things on the ground there? But again, you you again, it's about being candid with people. I think people appreciate candid.
3: Yeah, and in, in all fairness to President Bush, part of the challenge with Katrina was the local, state, and local officials and what they would allow the federal government to do. And that's the difference in nine eleven. Uh, you had uh, Mayor Giuliani at the time. Uh, Governor Pataki, who were very welcoming of the federal government and what President Bush was doing. That was very different in New Orleans after Katrina.
2: Well, I mean, when I'm thinking about the literature that I do know about this, which is not much, one of the things that's important in natural disasters or the thing that has been measured before is the declarations and the funding that goes along Mm. with the declarations. So it's most important for the executive to make sure their resources actually get funneled to areas. And if they aren't being funneled to areas, so, you know then that actually can pose an electoral problem later on. So if a president, you know, decides I'm not going to declare a certain area that's been devastated by a natural disaster, a disaster area, right? Like that could actually engender certain resentments later from those residents who might not want to support them later on. There's an
3: interesting exhibit at the Bush library at SMU and President Bush's library where uh, it talks about presidential decision making. And one of the scenarios is Katrina. And it talks about what was happening at that time and what the president and the federal government was getting from the state and what challenges they had and it was very instructive for me to to hear that and so uh, there's a there's a lot that was happening on the ground that got lost in the media coverage.
1: Yeah, I, I don't doubt that. I, and clearly, my point in doing this exercise is to say it's just the, the, no matter what the complications are, politicians' careers are sometimes at stake absolutely. when these things happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely, And absolutely. um, and you know, I'm really glad that you under reminded okay. us of the other 180 degree opposite reaction of George W. Bush. To nine eleven he was you couldn't have asked for a president to be more um, to be to more meaningfully address w- the worst disaster of terrorist attack the country yep. has ever seen and not just comforting the the victims, uh, not just trying to console all of us who were terrified of what was going to happen but but even to go so far as to say don't this is not about Muslims essentially right. This is not about Muslims. But it's
2: it's showing up and it's showing up with the right tone and it's showing up with the resources. And so if you miss one piece of all of that, then you're likely going to open yourself up to some type of
4: criticism. I mean, very true. And, and, you know, you know, I mean, it happened. 9-11 happened in New York City, alpha level city, uh, the financial, you know, brain center of the United States. uh, And Katrina happened in New Orleans. Yeah.
1: I want to go through, I want to tell, take you through one more weather crisis that actually did change the course of an entire city. Uh, you're all too young to uh, remember the May, and you were in the d- different parts of the country, but in 1979, uh, the city of, of Chicago had a mayoral election. Mike Bolandic, who had been uh, Mayor Richard J. Daley's handpicked successor uh, after Mayor Daley died, Bolandic should be the next mayor of the city, was running for election as, a, as, as the Chicago machine, the um, famous Chicago machine. And he was running against a renegade named Jane Byrne, who had been uh, Mayor Daley's uh, director of uh, O'Hare Airport and had now gone out on her own and wanted to be mayor. She was an outspoken, brash kind of challenger, given no chance at all to beat the Chicago machine. And in in January of that year, uh, right before the election, it started snowing in Chicago. And by the end of a period of snow of a week or so, there were more than two feet of snow on the ground. And the city, much like snowpocalypse here, was paralyzed only for a longer period of time. People could not drive their cars out of their uh, spaces on the street because the snow was piled so high Mayor Belandic started doing public service announcements in which he said to people, don't worry, we're getting this under control. If you can dig your car out of your parking spot, go to this school, that church parking lot, it's cleared, you can park there and let our plows come in and do Except when people took their cars to these supposedly cleared lots, they weren't cleared. It got worse and worse. And in the middle of all that, Jane Byrne, I wish you could see this and maybe we can post the visuals of it on our social media. Jane Byrne did this, it was snowing outside and she went out to the streets and with the snow falling all around her did this.
0: No one could stop the snow, but good planning can prevent the collapse of public transportation and clean the city up fast. I'm Jane Byrne, commissioner of consumer sales under the late Mayor Daley. Nothing seems to be working the way it used to. I think it's time to get Chicago working again for you,
3: vote for Jane Byrne in the Democratic primary,
1: Caesar. It, she won, she beat the Chicago machine, which had been in place for decades because of a, snow, a couple of snowstorms. Yeah, absolutely, it's
4: about taking advantage of every resource and tool you have, even if it's a few snowflakes. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I mean, obviously, politicians like to have people identify positive thoughts with them, positive events with them. And and sometimes politicians oftentimes will take negative events and pain uh, and associated with their opponents.
1: All right. I just thought it'd be fun to go through those examples. You know, if you out there know of other cases where in whatever community you're from or uh, uh, something that's uh, occurred recently, that has to do with the way in which a public official handed a snow crisis. Share it with us. We'd love, or, or any kind of weather crisis, we'd love to see it. Let's take a break right now. We'll come back. We've got a lot of news to talk about out of the state capitol, out of Washington, and we'll do that after this. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org cars. And thanks.
0: Chris Christie was a key member of President Trump's 2016 campaign team. In his new book, Christie says collusion with Russia was unlikely.
3: This group is still trying to hire field reps in Pennsylvania in August. I hardly think that they were organized enough to put together a Tom Clancy-type operation with Russia.
0: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Chris Christie's book, Let Me Finish, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
4: 4 till 7 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Let me reintroduce the panel. Uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, political science professor at Emory University and author of the upcoming book, Race and the Obama Administration, Substance, Symbols, and Hope. Have I got the whole title right? Yes, you got it. Wow. That's because I have Amazon <laughs> opened on my
2: iPad. <laughs> Whatever
1: works. <laughs> that comes out in mid-February, right? Yeah. Good. We'll talk more about it. Uh, Caesar Mitchell former uh, president of the Atlanta City Council and uh, candidate for uh, mayor. We're glad to have you back with us. It's great to be here. And Eric Tannenblatt, Republican insider who has been an instrumental force in working on presidential campaigns uh, from George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, and also involved, of course, with Republican Party politics here in the state of Georgia. And Eric, let's take a minute to acknowledge the fact that you have just, uh, and Caesar can join in this, you have just received what I think is, is an honor worth sharing with our listeners. Yeah,
3: I was just um, named to the board of directors of Points of Light, which was an organization that was founded by the late President George H.W. Bush. And something that's very meaningful to me, I, I was actually under consideration to join the board prior to his passing uh, but it became official. I guess it was a Caesar would know because he's on the board. It was about a week after his passing that I got word that the board had uh, approved my my appointment. So I'm looking forward to uh, to serving uh, with Caesar.
1: Well,
4: congratulations, yes, Caesar. You've been on the board for some time now. Yes, I have, and uh, it's a wonderful board. It does great work.
1: What what does Points of Light? So, so Points Foundation of Light really did.
4: is an organization that is global in scale. Certainly, very focused on what's happening in communities here in the United States. It works with local. Uh, nonprofit affiliates like Hands on Atlanta, uh, which are organizations focused on giving people an opportunity to be empowered uh, themselves as they give back to the community. It's really about volunteerism, uh, civic service. And so it's a wonderful organization founded by uh, President George Bush, um, the late George, President George Bush. Uh, and it's tremendously, uh, tremendously important uh, to our country and to our local communities
1: the thousand points of light phrase was in a, in one of his in convention speeches wasn't it i don't remember if it was the 88 or the 92 88. it was 88 and he talked about a country it, about a thousand points of light uh, to illuminate against the darkness whatever i don't remember i remember the speech very well
4: but not yeah. the exact context. yes yeah, it's, it's it's a it's the concept that every person can be a point of light. And so every day, uh, Neil Bush, who is our board chair and President Bush's son, uh, we give out a point of, of light every day to a person that's making a difference uh, in the community. It's an incredible, incredible. Uh,
3: and interestingly, uh, since my appointment, uh, it, it got some publicity. I have had people reach out to me uh, to to congratulate me, but have passed along stories of people that were points of light over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, and how by getting that recognition, it has helped their organization continue to do great things and raise their visibility.
4: Absolutely, and and I will say this too, and i take my hat off to the Bush family. Uh, They were very intent and very, very uh, uh, adamant about ensuring that points of light and all the folks who've been involved as daily points of light were involved in the memorial service for President Bush. It yeah. was, it was. I mean, even when uh, President Bush uh, was being taken back to from Washington back to Texas, uh, there was a points of light ceremony at, at the Andrew at, St. Uh, at Andrews uh, Air Force Base. It was incredible.
1: Um, congratulations, Eric and thank uh, Caesar. Thank you for sharing your stories about the foundation. Um, Andra, I, I, this has just come to my attention in the last couple hours, and you probably haven't had a chance to study up on it yourself, but uh, it, it's an, it, part of an interesting movement down at the state capitol right now in terms of how women mm-hmm. are feeling about their place in the legislature. We've just learned that Senator Nan orrick a Democrat, of course, from Atlanta, had introduced a resolution calling for Georgia to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which is... I think first passed by Congress in like 1970, it might be 72, I'm gonna look it up in a second, uh, there's only one state left. I mean, they only need one more state to actually put it into law, into the the Constitution of the United States. And uh, two Republican, the two Republican members, female Republican members of the the State Senate have now signed on in a bipartisan way. First of all, what does that tell us about how women are feeling, particularly in the aftermath of committee assignments, which seemed to the women down there to denigrate them in terms of their response, their power in the state Senate?
2: Well, I mean, I think that this is a continuation of Me Too and we're seeing what the um, after effects of of, of Me Too are. And so we're seeing ways that. Um, women are uh, coming together and being more assertive and, and you know, striving for leadership positions and striving to make the most of the positions that they have. Um, it also sort of represents that there are structural problems in terms of gender inequality that uh, people are not willing to allow goodwill to try to remedy. So, you know, people have relied on goodwill too often to say, oh, hopefully people will change their behavior. And I think there's some recognition that there has to be some type of legislative or even constitutional teeth behind that in order for women to be able to get their rights. Um, At least as far as the bipartisan nature of this particular push, um, we don't always see that in gender and politics, and especially with respect to voting behavior. And so, you know, partisan women usually don't defect to go vote for women on the other side, but we do see places where you can find common ground. And so if there are places where there are credible allegations that need to be explored about perhaps there are um, gender disparities and differences in terms of how people are being treated how committees are being assigned or reassigned, right, that that's a way for people to be able to sort of um, forge bonds. And so the fact that you have Republican women joining on to this because they are now being very vocal in their allegations of how they have been mistreated on account of their gender, I think it's something that the General Assembly should pay attention to. Um,
1: Cesar, uh, uh, Tom Faust uh, just said, yes, it was 1972 that Congress passed. it. Uh, it's interesting. First of all, the amendment is, is designed – to guarantee equal rights for all American citizens, regardless of of sex, and it it's it, it I'm reading from it right now. It seeks to end the legal distinctions between men and women in terms of divorce, property, employment, and uh, many other matters. Um, it was first introduced into Congress in 1921, but it finally in 1972 passed and. I frankly didn't know that a, 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 an amendment to the Constitution could stay open for as many years as
4: this has. Well, I, I didn't know it was still—I mean, honestly, I, that really was news to me. That's almost 50 years ago. And so I think, you know, I under, under put it best. I, I think you cannot uh, believe on any day, not even your best day, uh, that goodwill will trump uh, self-interest and self-preservation. So I think uh, I applaud the ladies down— at uh, the state legislature uh, for really standing up and saying, let's make this an issue. I think it's really important.
3: The, the most significant thing to me here is uh, that both uh, Republican state senators, female state senators, signed on to it. Kate Kirkpatrick uh, is a surprise because when uh, Senator Unterman, uh, you, you know, had issues a week or two ago about, you know, being reassigned or, or taken off. Taken of being off chair of the health committee. Health committee. Yeah. You know, Uh, You know, some of the Democratic uh, female senators rallied around her. But Kay Kirkpatrick was, I think, silent or you didn't see her. And so the fact that they've now joined forces and she that I think that's um, significant. You know,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, again, uh, Tom Faust points out that right now in the U.S. Congress, Lisa Murkowski is looking at whether or not 47 years later, the, there, there's no language in the amendment itself that sets a deadline for when it can be ratified. But there was a a, a working paper att- attached to it, which did set a deadline. Murkowski right now is looking at ways around that to still go ahead and, uh, and ratify this mm-hmm. amendment. Um, so, Andra, it strikes me as interesting that after the power that we saw— Speaker Nancy Pelosi exert in the fight over the continuing resolution that it, it just strikes me we've reached a moment where the recognition of women and the power that women can wield, it, it's, it's already past time to acknowledge it. And now's the time to say, let's ta- learn to take advantage of it.
2: Um, I think we're still learning how to deal with that. So, yes, I mean, I I think the optics of uh, Nancy Pelosi beating President Trump in the shutdown game for this round, I think, are really important. I think people are watching to see what President Trump's reaction to it is and whether or not like his reaction, if it's negative, actually gets supported um, in any kind of way or whether or not that gets shut down. I think that, you know, while we are making strides towards gender equality, there is still a long, long way to go. So, you know, we laud the fact that, you know, there's so many women in Congress. uh, It's still only about a fourth of the chamber and the balance is actually really lopsided. So the Democrats are not at parity, but closer to it. And the Republicans have a long, long way to go. We're still looking at disparities in terms of upper levels of leadership. We're still looking at pay disparities. I mean, there are all kinds of places where we still problems. We're still dealing with issues of sexual harassment. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, every step can be celebrated, but I think that we can't just sort of look at one particular achievement or the achievement of one person just, and then say, you know, you know, that we're even close to being almost there. So
1: as recently as Sunday on the front page of the Atlanta constitution was a story about the pay disparity at Georgia's Georgia state mm-hmm. universities mm-hmm. and full professors, males are making 25% plus $1,000 a year more than women who are full professors, and that the, the, the gap is a little narrower when it comes to assistant professors and that sort of thing, but it still exists. So it strikes me that if women are going to start assuming more power and, and saying we want demand equality in the legislature, these are the kinds of issues that they can look at, Eric.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I,
1: I, think, I think you're
3: absolutely right. I think we're going to see more and more of it.
4: Yeah, I think you, you know when you see a situation like what you see at Georgia State or in a symphony orchestra where you have a, you know a male player that's making two hundred percent more than the the, the the woman who's doing the exact same instrument. Uh, I think organizations have to make a commitment to be you know to being transparent, and that is let's look at our organization, let's look at how we're paying because it's just happened over time. And it's happened over time because of our cultural mores that we've got to really address. And I think every organization has to be willing to step up and steady it.
2: I mean, so, you know, um, especially when it comes to school stuff, there are all kinds of unknowns that actually end up disadvantaging people. So, you know, when you're at a public school like Georgia State or Tech— you can actually look at salary charts to kind of figure out sort of what people are making, right? It's a question of whether or not everybody does that when they go into a job negotiation, right? And there's a lot of responsibility that's actually placed on the candidate to make—to ask for the things that they need. And sometimes people don't always know to ask, and women in particular have to be socialized to ask for what they want and what Absolutely. they need. But there are also these structural things about what gets valued and what doesn't get right. valued.
4: Absolutely. And I, I got to say to this, though. Real quick. And, and that's why— uh, what Nancy Pelosi has done over the last couple of weeks is so important to be talked about.
1: I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm listening to Tom in my ear. There's a, an enormous breaking story for with implications here in Georgia and for Stacey Abrams. Uh, Tom wants me to take a break. When we come back, we'll tell you what it is.
0: On the next Fresh Air, Stephanie Land talks about her memoir, Maid, chronicling her life after fleeing an abusive relationship. She cleaned houses for a living, lived temporarily in a homeless shelter, and survived with the help of government assistance. She's faced many obstacles as a single working mother. Eventually, she took out a loan, went to college, and became a writer. Join us.
4: Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
1: All right, here's this. Here's the very brief uh, uh, bulletin from the Washington Post. The former Georgia gubernatorial candidate, Stacey Abrams, has been tapped by the Democrats to address the nation on February 5th after President Trump's speech to a joint session of Congress. Uh, it goes on to remind people that she lost the gubernatorial race narrowly. That is a stunning development for Stacey Abrams, Andra. I mean, we're sort of breathless over this
2: so you know it's stunning it's a it's a great moment for georgia and on the other hand, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, she made a huge national wave. And if we're talking about the presidential field and there's Bethel I've said on this show before, yeah. I don't think Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams get enough attention in that contest. Because if people who lose statewide contests can then be considered viable presidential candidates, then I think we need to consider the black ones along with the white ones. So, you know, I think this is a great platform. Um, I think, you know, she is, a, you know, a gifted orator. And and I think that, you know, she will do a good job representing herself, representing the Democratic Party and the state well. And so I'm going to be very curious to hear what she has to say.
4: Oh, I I just you know, this is this is actually incredible. I think there are two layers of 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 thinking around this. Number one, Georgia. Then number two, uh, I think the national conversation around issues. I think uh, the race here in Georgia frames up or framed up so many issues that are important on the national level. Uh, whether it's uh, around health care, education, as well as, uh, you know, access to voting and voter suppression. These are issues that are being seen across the country. And she's become kind of the standard bearer for being able to articulate those issues in a path of where we need to go. Number one. Yeah. Number two is I think uh, that is a further recognition Uh, that Georgia, uh, as Theresa Tomlinson has also said, is a blue state and will be in play in 2020. All right.
1: I also think, and and Eric, we're just digesting this, but as I sit here thinking about this, it's also a very clever move by the Democrats, because rather than having the the part, the uh, members of the House, a Democrat from the House, for instance, uh, in the Pelosi wing of the party, respond to Trump. Given that we saw the clash over the continuing resolution, the harsh partisanship there, it might be a little bit easier for the country to dismiss one of the, if a Pelosi were giving the the response than it will be to an outsider who is only beginning to be known. You know what I'm saying? It's a smart move by Democrats.
3: Well, we've seen this before where uh, the response to a president uh, has been given by someone outside of Washington. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't surprise me. I don't I take some exception about uh, your comment about Pelosi wing because I, I actually think that Stacey Abrams represents the, where the Demo- National Democratic Party is right now and is very progressive. And she's a progressive, and she ran as a progressive. I also think that Stacey Abrams ran for governor of Georgia as a national candidate. Uh, she had to because that's where she raised most of her money. And so I think I think we heard a couple of weeks ago that she was the most googled political yes. figure or camp or candidate in the, in the last uh, yeah in the country in the in the last election. So. Um, You know, I think it's good for her to continue to raise her her national profile. But I think it just reinforces that the Democratic Party has taken a hard turn to the left. I
1: I want to get under but real quickly. That's right. I was not suggesting that she's less progressive. I was suggesting she isn't a polarized figure in terms of the national debate right now. In in other words, she wasn't part of all of that, uh, that wall debate that went on. And therefore, she's kind of free of that. Go ahead. And-
2: well, I mean I think the, the, the issue is is that you know, Nancy Tan um, Nancy Pelosi has, you know, proven herself to be a skilled operator and that's because of her years of experience in Washington. But the, the Democrats are still having that fight about generation and image. And so by turning it over to a young person who does not appear to want to run for president, um you're turning it over to a new generation of leadership. And no offense, you know, when Nancy Pelosi gave her response to uh President Trump's uh, you know, uh, uh primetime address. She's not the greatest speaker in the world, right? She's not right. awe-inspiring. You're right. not going to get excited about what right. she says. So a young, energetic person like Stacey Abrams presents that youthful face of the Democratic Party that I think, you know, is complementary to the work that the elders are doing within the party, but is also the type of thing that can get people excited.
1: I want to make, I, I do want to come back at you on something you said a few minutes ago about uh, feeling that uh, uh, that when we talk about presidential, Democratic presidential mm-hmm. candidates, it's good to hear the name of an African African American, I thought Kamala Harris's rollout got tremendous response and was incredibly well-received by liberals. Oh,
2: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and her her announcement was um, stellar, actually. Um, You know, it was pretty close to perfect if you were going to look at sort of how she set herself up. And so this is not a sort of substantive, you know, whether or not you agree with what she says. But just in terms of the stagecraft of it, it was really good. But what I'm talking about are losing 2018 candidates who all uh, of a sudden end up on the short list for president. So, you know, Senator (laughs) Harris— And the other sitting senators are in one category, and then there's Beto O'Rourke, Stacey Abrams, and Andrew Gillum. And so you know, my issue has been, why is everybody telling Beto to run yeah. when yeah. the other two actually lost by smaller margins than this he did? Is, this is
3: actually going to put more pressure on her to run for the U.S. Senate. I, yeah. Oh,
4: absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. there's no yeah. question— well, that that actually, I think that's half of the uh, half of the play. I think what Andre says is absolutely yeah. correct yeah. in terms of being able to bring a new, fresh face that understands the elders, but at the same time, is really energizing a whole base of Democratic voters who've kind of been uh, detached for some time now and have never really gotten attached. But I think it's really about Georgia in 2020 because Georgia is going to be in play. All
1: right. I want to. There's a. We're we're shorter on time than I'd hoped to be at this point, and so there are a couple things we're going to have to park and and get to at, on another show. But Caesar, I want to turn to you uh, and and then get everybody else involved in this. Some interesting palace intrigue going on <laughs> down at City Hall this past week. Mayor Bottoms, your opponent in the uh, in the mayoral uh, race. Mm-hmm. Uh, ran on a on a pledge that she was going to bring transparency to government. She had a, what, a 10-point ethics uh, proposal, something like that. And there have been feelings since being elected. She's been a little slow to enact uh, what she promised in all of its uh, glory. And so she goes out of town for a conference, and while she's gone, City Council President Felicia Moore calls a news conference and rolls out her own version of this. That's all. That's great intrigue.
4: Well, I I think it, you know, there's a little bit more to the story than that. I think, um, you know, uh, I think there are a lot of folks who who want to see a a level of consternation and and, and fighting between the executive branch and the legislative branch. I don't think that's quite the case right now. Wait,
1: wait, wait. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's. The mayor leaves town, oh, Eric. I think Caesar is being overly
4: kind about this. Uh, I agree. agree. <laughs> See, then if I keep talking, then I'll then you'll know what I really know. But here's the point: I think I think uh, there's no way to avoid it. Uh, and if you are an elected official uh, in the city of Atlanta, and you have to go down to City Hall every day, you better be focused on ethics be focused on addressing this issue of corruption and building the confidence of the voters and citizens in city government and in elected officials. I think that is a responsibility that everyone has. And I think the council president has the, has the prerogative to lead the, the legislative branch uh, in that direction uh, without feeling as if there is some sort of slight against the mayor. The mayor's gonna do her part, and she's been doing some things, and I think the legislative body has gotta do its part, there, has to do their part.
3: Well, I, I agree with everything Caesar said, but I, I also think that if the president of the city council was going to do that, or wanted to do that she could have had a conversation with the executive and said I'm planning to do this heads up I think the fact that the mayor was out of town
1: and she did it does make right. you wonder. Felicia's conversation was with the mayor's scheduling assistant to say say when is the mayor going to be gone? No nah, that's
4: that's that's not that's it, it may have the, just I, been a
1: coincidence but that's the way it was well, I, I don't
4: think it was a coincidence but I think I, I think I think there was some outreach. I think
2: maybe. okay. So, I mean, I think you can think about this in terms of what the relationship is between the executive and the legislative branch in a city. And so, you know, they're different depending on what the charter looks like. But, you know, legislatures often have oversight capacity over the executive branch. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And let's let you know if we go with this and um, Council President Moore's plan works well. Mayor Bottoms looks good. So at the end of the day, do you fight it because I didn't wasn't the one to like, you know, actually sort of make the announcement or do you go along in the spirit of good government and say, "Let's just make sure that this happens and that it, it happens well."
4: Very true. I think that is going to end up being a test for Mayor Bottoms and and her administration. How well can they play in the sandbox uh with a council that's very assertive and a council president who uh really is very assertive as well. All
1: right. Well, I If I were Mayor Bottoms, I don't think I'd be as sanguine about this as Cesar Mitchell. (laughs) Uh, We've only got a couple minutes, but I I want to see if I can get just a couple responses. I was kind of astonished when I read uh, the New York Times piece the other day, which told us that Minnesota is now the only state in the country that has a legislature- in which one body is Republican and the other is Democratic. Andra, 49 states have legislatures controlled by only one party. That, to me, was kind of staggering uh,
2: to lure. So I would probably look at it as only one state currently has this, you you know, their elections happen all the time. We don't know what the plan is going to be. And that doesn't actually mean that we don't have divided government. So even if the legislature, you know, both houses, are controlled by one party. There are other states where the governor is of a different party.
1: But doesn't that, Eric, tell us about uh, partisanship? Doesn't it tell us about gerrymandering? Doesn't it tell us an awful lot about some of the things that are wrong with our system right
3: now? uh, uh, Everything you just said is is (laughs) absolutely correct. (laughs) I mean, we are very polarized right now as a country. And the redistricting process plays into that. And I think that's what's happened and why – You have red districts and blue districts, and that's why the legislature looks the way it does.
2: Well, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with the fact that we are polarized, but what that means is that people are becoming more consistent in their voting behavior and their partisan sort of behavior and their ideology are matching up in ways that they didn't a generation before. And so, you know, while we want to blame gerrymandering for a lot of it, and I'm not saying gerrymandering doesn't have a role in it, but I will say political scientists and statisticians argue about sort of yeah. how to measure this yeah. and whether or not this is true. I'm certainly open to the argument that 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 it is the case. There's a lot more that's going on there, and so the problem is is that conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans have found it easier to switch parties than to actually stay within their original parties. And you know, and then then that doesn't negate having the normative argument about whether or not you should let partisans draw their own district lines.
1: Yeah, right. But, which is going to be which we are going to be talking mm-hmm. about because in the months ahead, that's going to be a bigger and bigger story. One last quick note because we're virtually out of town Caesar. The other thing that Times piece pointed out, I hadn't seen the numbers, but something like twelve hundred legislative seats in the United States. Uh, turned over from an incumbent to the challenger in the 2018 election, and a majority of more Democratic. Interesting.
4: Yeah, that, that gives you a sense of where the country is going, mm-hmm.
1: frankly. All right. You get the last word for today's show. Uh, we were going to talk about the Second Amendment and uh, the Supreme Court now taking up a big case, a New York City case. We are not going to get to that today. We'll put it uh, on the agenda for tomorrow's show and get to it then. Um, Dr. Andre Gillespie... Eric Tannenblatt, Caesar Mitchell, thank you guys so much for coming in. Turned out you didn't have to brave a storm, and I'm glad you didn't because it was great to be able to get a live show on the air today. Uh, we're going to be back again tomorrow for a Political Rewind, and we will talk about that Second Amendment case and how it might influence how Brian Kemp, how Governor Kemp moves forward with his proposals on uh, uh, loosening restrictions on carrying weapons and all the other news That's happening in Washington, Georgia, and in your community. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again tomorrow.